Hello and welcome everyone to this episode of the Restorative Justice on the Rise podcast. Restorative Justice on the Rise was founded in 2011 to serve the growing global restorative justice movement. And we are honored and privileged to present to you a conversation today with Seema Gajwani and Robert Hayford of the Office of of the Attorney General in the District of Columbia here in the United States. I'm very much looking forward to sharing this conversation with you all. Please pass it along. This is open source content that supports the restorative justice movement globally. We want to hear your feedback and who you'd like to hear on our podcast in 2022. Please contact us at rjonrise at gmail.com. You can also find out more about SEMA and Roman and their work with the OAG in the District of Columbia by visiting our website at restorativejusticeontherise.org, which will have hot links to more information about their work, which is impacting and rippling across the globe. When one person begins a program that is done as well as they've done, it truly helps us to have good ideas and leadership within the programs that we wish to do within and alongside our justice systems. So thank you to Seema and Roman for sitting down with us. This podcast was originally recorded live in November of 2021. Thanks for being a participant in this global community. Stay tuned and be sure to add us in Apple and iTunes podcast. We're also at Spotify and sign up for our e-news to learn more about upcoming events and trainings. Thank you, everybody, and enjoy. Hello, everybody, and such a warm welcome to you all. I'm Molly Rowan Leach, and I'm co-hosting today's session for this week free of doing us justice with Neely Upamaka of Talking Peace. And in addition, we have Eric Butler, the founder of Talking Peace with us again today. And so it's just been really great um, to be with you all and to address this overdue topic pertinent to this field. And I've had the extraordinary pleasure and honor of having a roundtable panel with our very special guest today, which I'll be introducing in just a moment. Um, But welcome to Doing Us Justice. Again, we're at week three. The topic this week is decolonizing district attorney and court partnerships in the field of restorative justice. And there are a lot of amazing people in this field, but today's guests Um, intersecting with this topic are, it's a big treat. Let's just put it that way. We're in for a real treat today to hear from Seema Gajwani and uh, Roman Robert Hayford from the Office of the Attorney General in Washington, uh, excuse me, in the District of Columbia. And uh, before we talk a bit more about their backgrounds and just welcome them into the room, I wanted to give us a chance to honor and thank um, Talking Peace for co-hosting this series. I represent Restorative Justice on the Rise, which uh, of course is a media platform that aims to serve this field and has since 2011. 
doing podcasts, um, educational opportunities, and more. And really the heart of our network is to build alliances that support increasing awareness, educational opportunities, and inspired actions out of what we do. And so when I think of, of the honor of partnering with Talking Peace on this series, I think of uh, this project fulfilling itself even more because it really is a people's platform. So thank you for being part of it. And um, Neely, I just wanna welcome your voice and presence in as our wonderful co-host for today and this week again. Thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you, Molly. Um, hi, everyone. Good morning. Uh, my name is Neely Pumaka, and I'm the program manager at Talking Peace. I'm really excited to be here, here with you all this morning. Um, and thank you, Seema and Roman, for, for um, gracing us with your, with your wisdom and knowledge today. And one of the things that I love so much about Neely and the team at Talking Peace is their hands-on work. They really are truly in the community and truly working with the youth. Um, Eric, anything you'd like to say before we bring in Simon? I see your videos back on. Good morning, y'all. I'm not going to say a lot. It's an ungodly time of the morning. All right, well, it's wonderful to your face, Eric, and to you as always, it really is. So we have a really potent topic this week, and I know that um, are waiting to dive in with Roman and Seema. Um, I just wanna point your attention to the fact that Restore Justice on the Rise does an iTunes podcast of a round table with them from uh, June of 20, Gosh, when was it? Um, 2019? Seems like forever ago. But there is a podcast dialogue with Seema, Roman, and other members of the Office of the Attorney General, as well as um, uh, our friend Tarek Masani from Restorative DC. All very inspiring people doing incredible work, way showing, and in particular in this pocket um, that we call the office the, the attorney general. So I just want to say, um, instead of being an official bio, these two are extraordinary professionals. And what I love so much about each of them, Seema and, and Roman, is the, the clear and obvious acumen that they have about this field, as well as they've translated professionally to connect it with others who may not be aware of its efficacy. And um, both have human relations skills, building relationships from, from uh, just being genuine human beings. Um, and that really lights me up when, when there's professionals really in it, doing this work every day within these systems who can maintain that kind of presence. Um, that's extremely Did we lose Molly? Really? You're on. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like we <laughs> lost Molly. Oh, she's back. <laughs> <laughs> Neely's heart skips a beat. <laughs> Molly, we lost you for a second. Yeah. Sorry about that, everyone. I'm getting my internet all day, so it'll be a little bumpy. But um, not 
um, forgive me for going on so long. Let's just warmly welcome Simon and Robert Roman Hayford into the dialogue today and um, just welcome. Thank you so much for your time out of your busy schedules. Thank you, Molly and Neely and Eric. Uh, um, Molly, I think that was the nicest introduction I've ever had. <laughs> so thank you for that. That was better than any introduction I've heard. Um, and I appreciate those kind words. That's really generous of you. Um, I'm gonna let Roman start. <laughs> Roman. Well, I'm gonna start just by thanking you again, Molly. You do a service to us by keeping us engaged and connected to everything else going on. So I just really wanna acknowledge what you and Neely are doing. Um, Eric, your good work, he just hopped off, but I'm one of the talking peace ambassadors. I'm always, um, again, Eric, just acknowledging you guys um, who are really doing the national work. You help to, you are two of the people that I really see and look up to as tying this community together nationally. Cause I'm sure Seema will echo that we are so, you know, siloed sometimes and so laser focused on all the things that we're doing in DC. So this is, um, this invitation is really a good opportunity for us. So thank you. Um, thank you so much. And I really mean that from the heart. It was uh, in this work. So. Um, I don't know, Seema, if you had any notes down. I, I, I want to wait for Molly, but I also want to jump in. I was thinking about this question. Um, and Neely, if you want to hit us with certain questions that you have, do you have anything particularly you want us to start off with, agenda-wise? Um, I think um, y'all can just jump in. But um, I think one question I do have, um, and what we've been asking a lot of the folks who've been joining us in the series is like, if you were able to kind of define restorative justice, uh, I know it's hard to kind of define it, but like in your words, um, how would you, yeah, describe what restorative justice is um, in terms of the work that you do? Cool. Yeah, so um, I'll say a few things and then let Seema say a lot more things, I hope, but you know, we work, our team is um, experimenting with something that's both controversial and very challenging. Um, um, it's controversial for both, for sort of more theoretical reasons in that we're a team of folks who are endeavoring to be authentic restorative justice facilitators, but we work within the prosecutor's office, right? And so SEMA architected this program knowing full well that that was something that was uh, a gamble, to put it lightly. Um, and we, we don't, um, we try not to shy away from that because we are living in a, you know, we are still working within a, a system that largely looks the way it has, um, even with us there, uh, right? Even with us doing what we feel is very good work. And I'd love to tell some of the stories. I mean, we've had four or five restorative justice conferences just in the past week, you guys, with 
young people committing some of the most serious offenses in the District of Columbia. We're talking about armed robberies. We're talking about violent assaults. Um, we've just recently begun um, doing restorative justice diversion with uh, gun crimes. Um, and it's taken years to get to that point. So we're very excited about that. And we believe that our facilitators are some of the best and the outcomes they have with families are phenomenal, you know, and our model, um, for those of you who know about restorative justice conferencing, our model is, um, we feel very, you know, uh, looks a lot like the restorative justice conferencing that folks are trained on um, in this call and in the restorative justice community. Um, we have youth who start off the process not wanting to do much of anything except get out of their situation or um, get off the phone with us. <laughs> we, six weeks later, they are asking, you know, to do more for the victim or do more for their family members, at, you know, wanting to exchange contact information, take walking through 10, 15 minutes at a time sometimes exactly what they did and why. Um, Seema's recently um, partnered us up with some um, community-based amazing um, therapists who are doing sort of a modified group cognitive behavioral therapy with some of our most serious um, at-risk um, participants. And all these things are amazing. Every time we finish one of these conferences, it's just like I'm renewed in my faith that what we're doing is so important. And um, it is still very we're challenged every day. We wring our hands every day at the fact that we still are operating within a system that fundamentally is a punitive one and fundamentally is criminalizing these, these, these are young participants. So that's, that's one. But to answer your question, um, Neely, th this recently came up for me in answering this question um, more and more. And I think what it boils down to, there's so much we can talk about with the evolution of our program, but for me, what restorative justice boils down to is a commitment, first and foremost, to engaging with youth and their families and folks who've been harmed um, from a relational standpoint, building a relationship with them genuinely, as genuinely as possible following the conversation with them at an organic pace, making them feel comfortable, building rapport, relationships. And those of you who know who I started off my um, RJ work in Oakland with uh, Sujata and Ashley and Nuri at Impact Justice. And Sujata nailed, you know, would always say restorative justice is about relationships. And it's really only now that that's becoming just more and more clear because almost every Every question that comes up of how do we handle this, you know, so-and-so defense attorney is off the rails. So, you know, so-and-so's mother wants to sabotage the process. So-and-so just got locked up in another jurisdiction. So-and-so just picked up another assault charge. Almost always um, the system would handle these things in all sorts of ways and has a legal answer potentially, right? Um, but then you have our team, which goes in, who can we talk to that can help us you know, reach out to them? Who can help us de-escalate the situation? Who, what relationship have we built with these people, um, participants? Can we 
lean lean against. It's not about us. It's about the relationships that we've built. Um, and and so I think that is why um, our team members are able to have these outcomes and are. I would I would say after a few years now, we are really seen differently within the system than than other roles. Um, we hope to have this type of impact on the other players within the justice system. And I think Seema can say more about whether she thinks we're having that impact, for example, on prosecutors. Um, but I think that's really the core. That's why when when things are happening, that's why we get the trust that we have to basically run with both victims and young people, which is like a radical concept within um, serious crimes in, in a prosecutorial setting. So I think that's to long my long-winded, um, probably too lawyerly way of answering your questions. It's treating everybody as number one, good, and the goal being to build a relationship with them rather than to process them. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I could have said it better. Roman speaks really beautifully about um, taking time and space. And uh, Roman, you're going to have to say this better because you've talked about it. I'm just copying what you've said, but slowing everything down and building a relationship with the child and building a separate relationship with the mother and building a separate relationship with the father and stopping and spending time with the victim and walking with the victim and understanding their pain and understanding the, the things that make the young person not wanna get on the phone, not wanna put his face in the camera and just slowing everything down and then building trust with every single participant, making sure everyone feels safe and heard and um, like they belong and then bringing them together to have a difficult conversation that starts with seeing each other as human beings. Once we treat a person, any one of these players as a human being, and then we bring them together and we allow them to take advantage of a space where they can see each other as human beings, then the work of, of resolving issues and getting through hard conversations and being accountable and finding closure and healing, those things just come naturally. And I've been doing this with Roman for many years now, and many's not really that many, like five years. <laughs> we're not that we're not that um, expert at doing this, but for for several years now. And I, you know, I started this work. Uh, came, I came into the prosecutor's office. I came in with an elected official who recognized that our juvenile justice system causes harm. We have a lot of research. We have a lot of data, and it shows that if you put a kid through our system, they're going to get worse. And there are all these ways that they do compared to the kid that gets deflected, same background, same criminal history, same charge, you deflect them from the system and they will do better than if you put them through the system. And better could be they're less likely to commit new, new crimes, but also better um, because the kids who go through the system are more likely to, um, to fail in school, to be suspended and expelled. They're more likely to not have gainful employment in their lives, not, not as likely as the one who's diverted um, to um, have a successful relationship. They are more likely to, to struggle with addiction and, and engage in risky sexual behavior and have poor health. So like putting kids through the system is toxic. 
And so I knew that kind of as a, as like an academic matter. Um, but doing this work for all of these years now, it's really, it hits so hard to see how hurtful this system is to young people and to victims of crime, really to everyone who touches it. I'd argue that it's, it's toxic to the prosecutors and defense attorneys too. Um, but the system, um, even the parts of the system that we think are innocuous or even just, I think can cause great harm. And I'll tell one story um, to illustrate this point. This, this just kind of came up within the, the summertime. Uh, we had a pretty serious case with a young person who um, had tried to rob a woman um, of something and uh, she resisted. And in the struggle, he panicked and he shot her, okay? And a bullet grazed her body. Um, and we have, as Roman said, an extraordinary group of facilitators who we get to work with, Roman being one of them, one of the most extraordinary. Um, I could tell stories about Roman and how he works with people all day long, but I'll tell this story first, which is with another facilitator from our team, uh, Ashley. So Ashley, as the facilitator, is given this case, and she goes and talks to the, the, the boy first. She first gets permission from the defense attorney, then from the parents, and then she talks to this boy. And immediately, he's like, this was not supposed to happen. I feel so badly. I am so sorry. I did not mean to hurt this woman. You know, is she okay? Please tell her that I'm so sorry. So Ashley, in the course of what we do, she went um, separately and talked to the victim of the crime, the woman who was hurt. And, um, and the woman was traumatized, right? She's like super scared. She's angry. She's hurt and she's terrified. Um, but in spending time with her um, over some period of, of time, a couple of weeks maybe, the woman agrees to do restorative justice. She decides that it offers her more than the justice system would offer her in the context of what she needed. Um, but the woman is still like super traumatized. So she and Ashley talk regularly. This is in the COVID era. So I don't know if they were meeting in person, maybe at the very beginning they were before March, um, but they talked, but the woman who was hurt um, you know, checks in with Ashley, talks to her about how she's doing, but is really not able to even talk about what happened to her. She's not able to revisit the actual crime because she's pretty traumatized by it. And so in a very kind of rare and unusual thing, Ashley goes to the boy and seeks permission. She says, look, usually we don't disclose what one party says to the other, everything is confidential. But in this case, can I have your permission to just tell the woman who you've hurt, um, this one thing that you've said to me. And he said, of course. So she goes to the woman and she says, um, I don't typically do this, but I've asked permission and the boy says it's fine, but he really wanted to tell you that he's terribly sorry for what he did. He didn't mean for you to get hurt and he really hopes that you're okay. And immediately the woman starts bawling and she just sobs like the ugly cry, you know, for she's crying and crying and crying. Um, and at that point, the woman is able to start talking about what happened to her. And so Ashley continues to work with her. They start to discuss what happened to her. She's working with both sides, which is what we do. Um, and a very, like a highly unusual thing happened in this case. It happens and I think none other of our cases, Roman, maybe you can correct me, but I think that in no other case does a situation happen that we go to sentencing 
uh, in a case before the restorative justice conference, but there were a bunch of unusual circumstances, COVID being one of them, the thing was delayed for some time. And so for whatever reason, the court process took this case back a little bit from us. We had it, right? It was in the restorative justice space. We had taken it out of the court system, but it pulled it back in and, and the parties had to go to disposition, which is sentencing for a juvenile. And this is now over video Zoom and they have the hearing over a screen that looks like what you all and I'm looking into. And everyone is there. There's the judge, there's the court clerk, there are the lawyers on both sides. There's Ashley, the restorative justice facilitator. There's the boy, his mother, and the victim of crime. And the restorative justice conference, the dialogue between them hasn't happened yet, but it's set to happen in the future, in the, in the coming weeks or something. Um, but they're going to sentencing anyway. And usually we don't go to sentencing because our cases are dismissed when you're successful, but this was an unusual case. And so what happens at a sentencing is that, you know, they go through these like motions. And so the judge says at some point to the victim, now it's time for you to read your victim impact statement. And so a victim impact statement is what happens uh, in a traditional court process. And in this case, I think the victim had actually written her victim impact statement in the very beginning of the case when she had first started talking to the prosecutor. And she had written down how she felt and how she was impacted. And the judge said, now it's time for you to read your victim impact statement. So this victim pulled out her victim impact statement and she read it word for word. And it was a long statement and I wasn't there, but Ashley talks about kind of the tone of the statement. And, and apparently uh, at one point towards the end of the statement, the woman reads, I hope you're ashamed of yourself. Um, your mother should be ashamed of you. And your father, if you even have a father, should be ashamed of you. And then she finishes. And then the judge looks um, to the boy and says, do you have anything you wanna say? And he says, no. And he had written a letter to the woman before he had gotten onto the video for this hearing but he didn't read it. And they concluded the disposition. And Ashley got back in touch with the boy afterwards. She calls, he was at a facility, he was being detained. And she calls to talk to him and he says, Miss Ashley, I don't wanna do restorative justice anymore. And, and we can't force anyone to do it. It's a voluntary process. And she talked to him for a little while, but he was adamant. And he said, I just don't wanna do it anymore. I don't wanna to talk to the lady. And Ashley later talks to the mom of the boy who she's gotten to know. And the mother said that she learned that when the boy, he was in a facility and they take them to a special room to do the video conferencing. And when they were taking him back to his unit, they had to, to send him to a different unit, um, the unit where they put young people on suicide watch. And it reminded me of something that when I first learned about restorative justice, um, Tarek actually, who taught me about restorative justice, Tarek Masarani, um, he showed a clip and it was a clip of um, Brene Brown, who I didn't know at the time. And she was talking about the difference between shame and guilt. And she said, um, there's a difference between shame and guilt. It's really critical difference. She said, um, shame says, I am a bad person. And guilt says, I'm, I've done a bad thing. And she says, shame is correlated in the literature with all of these negative behaviors like psychological problems, depression, violence towards others, self-harm towards yourself. 
Um, but she says guilt is actually inversely correlated to all of those things. Um, because guilt has within it, I am not a bad person, but I made a bad decision. I did a bad thing. It has within it a path for redemption. Because she said in this clip, if you hold up something that you've done that is wrong or something that you haven't done that is wrong next to who you want to be, that she says is a very adaptive thing. She says, it's uncomfortable. It sucks to have to do it. But to put up next to each other what you've done that's bad and also who you want to be and what you need to do to make better decisions, that's very adaptive. And that to me is the heart of restorative justice. Um, Neely, to answer your question, that's what the heart of restorative justice is to me, but it also screams in like neon lights to me how bad our justice system is. Because I once heard a district attorney in California who said that our criminal justice system is a recidivism machine. But in my mind, it's a shame machine, right? Like at every point, we stigmatize and we shame and we dehumanize people. We steal their voice and their agency uh, and we churn them through, right? Like at this speed, like it's a machine. We just churn them through this machine. And like Roman said, what restorative justice does is it stops everything. It is premised on relationships. It's premised, it's premised on compassion. You know, the, like what Roman said, the, the, the fundamental point that, that each person you're talking to is good, right? Is not bad. It's not about shame. It's about guilt and accountability. And then becoming adaptive through that and building a better self. Um, and so I think it's really amazing that we get to do this work, but it's, you know, it's hard in many ways, but one of the hardest parts I would say is seeing our process and the work we do with young people next to such a toxic and harmful process. You know, a victim impact statement is considered by judges and prosecutors and probably everyone in the system to be perfectly fine, right? It's like, it's innocuous, it's, it's just. And yet there's so much harm that can be caused. And it's because the system dehumanizes. Um, and so, yeah, that story um, chokes me up every time <laughs> I think about it. But I think it's a beautiful ex explanation of why we desperately need to transform our justice systems. Um, and uh, ideally these things would happen on the outside, but currently we have this system and I think it's incumbent upon, certainly we feel in DC that what we need to do is we need to demonstrate that you can transform a system even from within uh, to, show, to show folks that, that it's better. It, it reminds me that um, this bad system, this bad justice system, our bad justice systems, in order for it to work, it has to be used as a thing that dehumanizes the, the, um, the assailant. Um, because we, we can't do it as, as human beings. We're not, we're not wired in a way where we can, um, where we can um, do the things that our justice system does to people without calling them something else. Um, in both stories, 
what I've heard was a use of our values and, and, a, and a freedom to use our values, which is in our opinion, the, the, um, the definition of justice is having the freedom to use your values. We talked about accountability, which is the value that we want, um, relationships, um, redemption, all of those things are taken away from you in our justice system as, as a tool to um, dehumanize you. Um, when we put these things into our justice system, it, it breaks our justice system. It, it, it doesn't work. It, in fact, if we use our values to create something different, it would tear down the justice system. It wouldn't be able to work. The cycle wouldn't be able to continue. Um, there would be more people saying, um, we would rather go on trial, we'd rather go to trial than to um, take a plea because we'll be using our values. It would clog the system so that they wouldn't be able to, it wouldn't be able to work. The only way it works is if the powers that be train us to dehumanize others that has done harm. And they will advertise it. And um, those people have a look, those people have a look. So these people are the bad people. And usually it's people that looks, look like me. Um, and um, the, at whatever they do, they have, we have a set of rules for these people. And they're a certain type of person. Um, they used to call them super predators. And these were babies that we deemed as super predators, which I coincidentally grew up in that era of super predators, which meant I could be walking down the street and because of my look, the assumption that I'm a predator um, is relevant. On top of that, I'm 17 years old, so that puts super in front of predator. And we continue that cycle in schools where we learn how to treat kids from the justice system. And in order for us to, um, to break down the system, we have to replace the rules with our values that we all share. We all want redemption. We all do, none of us want to be, become the worst thing that we've done in our lives. And our system use certain people, they've done a certain thing, and for the rest of their lives, that thing becomes who they are. And personally, if, if that tag is on me by everybody in society, you have created a monster because that is who I am going to become. I don't have a choice. The only way I can operate in the system is if I, if I become the thing that you say I am. So I become that thing. Until somebody humanizes me with values. And um, when, when, um, there's the shame that happened in, in your story to this young man. Um, the reoccurrence of that same shame over and over and over again that he's not he's not worthy of redemption he's not worthy of relationships they isolate you to make sure that you get the fact that you're not worthy of relationships or or love right which you're is another one of our values and we can go and we can go through all of the values that we share alike. Um, empathy. I am not worthy of empathy. I'm not worthy of um, forgiveness. I am not even worthy to be listened to. Yeah, right. Um, or have you tell me your story. And that's why we talk a lot, folks, about 
offering our story, the re these relationships that happen, even in the beautiful stories, those relationships that happen when, with the beautiful stories, it starts with the attempt to build the relationships and it ends with a relationship. And in all cases, it's a relationship that you can't get yourself out of. And that's how we are connected as humans. Once we start on that path of relationship building, we can't disconnect from them. You can have kids, no matter how bad your kids are, and some of us got bad kids, still want accountability for, for them. You don't want punishment, you want accountability. You still want relationships for them. You still want redemption for them, and even for yourself. And that's what connects us. The, the thing that makes our system work is because our system has been able to um, dehumanize us in a way where we don't connect with each other. So we're left with these assumptions that um, we see over and over played on television. And we watch too much damn TV. We do watch too much damn TV. Um, I would just echo that everything that you're saying, but one thing that I've noticed from working in a system is that the system Everyone in this system thinks that they don't have very much power, right? Yeah. If you asked every player in the system, they will say, well, it's not really on me, right? It's the judge who makes the decision, or it's not on me, it's the law enforcement, the police who bring me the case, I just have to prosecute based on these factors, you know, or it's not, you know, everyone kind of um, disavows responsibility and I, I I have to say, I think most people who work in this system just don't know another way to do it. The system has kind of become ossified and it does exactly as you're saying, Eric. It dehumanizes, it uses shame, it strips values, it strips relationships, and it condemns our young people and our adults, the, the people who are accused of crime, it condemns them to be what we what we're telling them they are and then they they give you that right like it's this horrible vicious cycle but i don't know that anybody really intends to do that and when you expose them to a different way of doing things i have found that people are more open to it than i have i would have i would have guessed absolutely you know in our world I, you know, I come, I was a public defender when I came up, you know, like I've done criminal justice reform for a while. In our world, the bad guy is the prosecutor, right? Like these are the people who, these are, these are, these are the bad guys in the, the CJ, the criminal justice reform space. And as Roman alluded, we work with the prosecutors side by side. We work on cases with them. And when they give us the case, we, you know, we have confidentiality and we protect our, our participants. And so they don't get to hear about what happens. Uh, they don't get to, um, to be in the conferences on their cases. But what we've done is we've, we've allowed them one by one with the permission of the participants to sit in and observe a case that is not theirs, right? And these are folks who wake up in the morning and go to work to be juvenile prosecutors. They literally put kids in jail. This is their job, right? And, and they not only are juvenile prosecutors, but many of them wanna be adult prosecutors, right? They wanna put people in jail for a long time. So this is the orientation of these folks. And yet, when we put a prosecutor into a conference and let them just observe and participate 
in a model of resolution of conflict that humanizes people, where people get to know each other, um, where, um, where we hear about their lives and their, and their values, Eric, as you mentioned, um, and all of the beautiful things, we can talk about what happens in a conference, but all of the things that happen in the conference, when they leave the conference, what we've noticed is that that prosecutor who is now observed a restorative justice conference will refer more and more cases to us and refer more and more serious cases to us. Mm -hmm. Because I think that they realize that this is actually getting better, better mm -hmm. outcomes for the victims. And they see for the first time a young person and their family members outside the environment of court, which is the most dehumanizing and demonizing environment you can think of um, and disempowering. And so even people who we think are kind of the worst people in the system, when exposed to restorative justice, by and large, really change how they look at conflict and crime. And the more they are exposed to it, the more and more they change. And then we end up with prosecutors who have identity crises, right? Roman, Roman is really, he's like our liaison to the prosecutors. And they've had to come to Roman, the prosecutors, and say, can you facilitate um, a, a healing circle for us prosecutors because we are struggling under the weight of what we do yeah. Yeah. in the system that we work in? If, if, if I can add to that, um... Seems absolutely right. I've, I've done a training in Dallas with their prosecution, with their prosecutor's office. They were um, prosecuting kids. Um, so what I did was, my, my assumption was, these are gonna be the toughest people in the world to talk to. I'm not gonna be able to get through to them. Um, they were white men, so my assumptions definitely went crazy. Um, but I, um, I got baby pictures of the kids, some of the kids that they had prosecuted, I talked to their parents. And um, I put these pictures in a circle and I asked them, who are these kids? And I just wanted them to use their imagination because of course they didn't know who they were. And so they would pick up these pictures. It's like, this kid looks like my kid. Um, and then I would ask further questions, like I'm asking you to dream, what is this kid gonna be when he grows up? At the end of this conversation, I told him, no, this kid was sentenced to seven years and his um, childhood was taken completely away from him. So he's not gonna be able to be a doctor the way you had dreamed him to be. Um, and the reason why was because even in this conversation where we're talking about imaginary kids, they were able to build a conversation through a connection that they had with the look of a baby. So these people have the same exact values that we have. They've been trained to dehumanize. They've been trained to, um, to not have relationships. In fact, one thing that they do is um, what I've learned was while, while in circles, they don't want to talk about themselves and some none of the trauma that they've gone through themselves because their job tells them that there's no room in their, in their heart for, that, for those type of conversations. So if you can break the ice, and you absolutely can because we're all human and they would like a better way, but they're not presented, presented a better way. So as restorative justice practitioners, what is our responsibility um, in situations where, um, like it's easy, it's, it's easy to introduce restorative justice to kids. They want it. They haven't been trained not to, um, not, not to want those values. So is it our responsibility to, to, um, to wake up the, to the dead or to sleep? 
Roman yes. had, uh, yeah, please, please speak Roman. Roman. Roman does all of this work in our office. I just talk about it. Yeah, you know, I think that um, it is, it is absolutely. Uh, and we're still, um, I think, at the early stages of that, to be honest with you, I, I think that this is what I previewed earlier, you know, in terms of what I like to do, I, I like, we just trained a, a new prosecutor the other day. And at the end of the training, she said, why wouldn't I use this all the time, you know? And I think there's a few different reasons why she said that. I mean, number one, that's a bellwether that like, you know, at least at our office, you know, things really, you know, the mindset of prosecutors at this point really does, has expanded, I think, culturally to a certain degree. Maybe slower than we would like, but it has. But I also think the reason is because, you know, Seema and I are used to training prosecutors at this point. And again, we know it's the same thing as when you're working with uh, youth or family. You, we, we, trained her by getting excited about her being on our team. Yes. You know, and, and, and getting excited about her uh, being a part of great outcomes. So immediately we're falling back on values rather than, you know, career goals or metrics for her success that might be imparted to her from law school or from LinkedIn or whatever, or from where her peers expect her to go because she's tracked herself, which is difficult to do. Um, that is that is one of our sort of big icebergs that we're chipping away at. Um, I think, I think it is it is important for us to, you know, a lot of this we just do by doing um, by doing the thing as facilitators that might've been uh, viewed as impossible, um, which is reliably bringing, you know, the two sacrosanct polar polarities of, of, a, of an incident together and reliably having outcomes that we wanna talk about, um, number one. But I do think that um, there's a lot more work to do here and um, you know, after this summer of like, uh, you know, reimagining, you know, all of our roles, I think that anybody who's a restorative justice, you know, all of our restorative justice facilitators, you know, some of them, this is one of their first jobs, but I still think it's worth, you know, it's not, it's not my first job. It's not, it's not Seema's first job. Um, we, we, we came up um, in a, a legal system, a legal education that did not have these opportunities and did not make room for these possibilities. Um, and I think that my big word, just in general in 2020 has been adaptation. Whether it's COVID, whether it's um, anything, you know, virtual, what we're doing right now, um, we have got to begin to, just the way that we, we now, um, as facilitators is something we take for granted. We embrace um, what can seem like horrifying being bringing together people who've caused each other harm. We 
have retrained ourselves, you know, both Seema and I as former practitioners in the legal system where we would only represent one side or the other, we've retrained ourselves to embrace a role that represents everybody and bring brings a sort of different um, set of tools and assumptions to what we're up to every day when we're talking to people. And I think that in my theme of adaptation, um, we are asking our young people who are charged with crimes to adapt, right? We are asking them to adapt very quickly from an environment, you know, I'll tell another story, you know, recently had a great conference with a, a, a young man who, again, on paper is a super predator. He's carrying guns around DC. He's living in a bad neighborhood and he's smart enough to know exactly where to get rid of the gun when he's being pursued on foot by multiple MPD officers. Just, you know, might as well slap, slap him on the intro to the cops uh, show. You know what I mean? Like, forget about it. And in working with him, I didn't know who this young man was going to be, but he turned out to be one of my favorite participants in a long time because he was so shy to talk. He didn't want to be on the camera. He, he, was, he was shy. There were like so many levels of self-consciousness to get through. Of course, with what he did, he had, he had one of these helicopter moms who spoke for him and all these things. Um, he was, but he, and he felt guilty. Um, and we were able to shift some of that shame over into the guilt category. And so that by the end of the process, he, he, we, when we started the Zoom call um, for his conference, he was smiling. And I said, why are you smiling? And he said, because I'm, I'm graduating from this program today. You know, he was excited to, and he, we, had, we had been cheering him on to talk about what he did in front of his mother and now in front of somebody else who'd been harmed by gun violence, which was our surrogate victim, right? And he did a great job and we were genuinely all a bit surprised and proud of him. So in a space of eight weeks, he adapted quite a bit um, from his role coming in as a, as a respondent in a, in a criminal case and all the things that Eric talked about of what that tells him he's who he's supposed to be, cool. right? And all those assumptions, those career assumptions that are placed upon him that get in the way of his background values as a human being. His career assumptions to become more um, violently masculine, to become more um, inward in his emotions, less talkative. And in a space of eight weeks, with all these pressures as a young 16 year old kid, he adapted. That's why we were proud of him. And if he can do that, and, and we, are, we ask our facilitators to change whatever career goals they thought they had for themselves and learn to do this thing called restorative justice. So they're adapting, they're not just social workers or whatever the past, you know, our, our status quo um, role models have been, all of us are having to adapt because things aren't working very well. They're working wor worse than ever. And so I think that, um, to end, it's a long-winded way of answering Eric's question. Yeah, I do think we need to, to, to speak more about this. And it's it's tricky, right? It's sensitive because we there's a lot that has to be orchestrated together to 
incentivize and give people the, the opportunity to adapt. But we have to start, all of us start talking about it together. So it takes less burden, puts less burden on people like Eric Butler. Um, but again, I think we all have to adapt. If we can ask this young guy to adapt, I, I have to be willing to adapt. Prosecutors have to be willing to adapt. You know, judges, maybe even to something that they didn't even recognize, but that's okay because if we are in touch with our values, the we should welcome the adaptation. Even if it doesn't match up to what we thought, who we thought we were supposed to be based on career expectations and whatnot. Right on, yeah. And, and the community has to, to adapt. Um, and thinking about the community adaptation to at least just that single situation where this boy has put on this um this uniform of a um a violent man like we have to ask, ask the question like where did that idea come from i have an idea where it came from it came from us so sometimes we have to stop being cowards and say we're we we've contributed to that to that kid's downfall in some kind of way. We taught this kid how to be the way he is in some way or another by by our own false masculinity masculinity ideas um, and and how we teach our boys um, just just in that situation um, particularly. What are the first steps in? Um, and having these um, conversations with folks who might be most resistant to it, like um, prosecutors. Do you want to answer that, Sima? I, I don't know the answer. <laughs> if, I wanted to do this, if, if I wanted to do this, what's right. the first thing that I should be doing? You know, when Roman and I speak to judges or prosecutors, for me personally, I feel like the, the way I came to appreciate restorative justice was by being in a circle and watching it, by experiencing it. Yeah. And uh, Roman and the team um, helped get snippets in our office of different people who'd been through restorative justice on video and we put them all together in this, um, this like 10, 12 minute video. And when we train, people in the justice system, we typically show that video first. Um, but what we're trying to, and when I speak, I always just tell stories because I feel like the only way I'm going to have people understand the feeling um, and the values that you talk about, yes. Eric, is to actually feel it with me, right? Mm -hmm. To tell the story so that they, 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 it, weighs, it weighs in their heart. And I think what we're all doing is just trying to approximate, we're trying to like find a way to substitute for everyone being able to sit in in a restorative justice circle of some sort. Um, and I, and it's so hard. I remember I've been to restorative justice trainings where people will say, uh, you know, we're all gonna do this in circle because then you're gonna understand restorative justice, but then we just have a regular conversation, but we're in a circle. And I don't feel like that does it, right? Like I don't, that, that's not quite it. I think it's closer to what you did, Eric, where 
Uh, and what we do, we call it community building, which is the first thing we do when we do a restorative justice conference with all of the participants sitting around mm -hmm. the circle. And that is that we, um, we have to make ourselves vulnerable, right? Like you have to be, I don't care if I'm a prosecutor or a victim or the person who committed the harm or a parent or a supporter, I'm, I'm gonna have to make myself vulnerable and I'm, and I'm gonna watch as other people make themselves vulnerable. And when that happens and when, you know, and we'll use different strategies, like we'll ask questions that remind people about something in their childhood or somebody who they love or somebody who they look up to or somebody who looks up to them or talk about something that's been hurtful to them. So when we do that in the restorative justice circle, um, then we create an environment where, where people open their, their hearts, right? Like they put their soul out there in the hopes that the other person is also gonna open their heart and put it out there. And when we do that, it's what you said before, Eric, like our natural instincts as human beings are towards connection. And when you share with somebody and when sh somebody shares with you, then that connection happens. Like it's this like, it's like little bits of electricity, like magic, you know, it's, it's like now I see you as a person and I, and I can then say like, I see you as a human being and I trust you as a human being. And you see me as a human being because you shared with me too. And so you can trust me as a human being, which is not to say that I'm not still angry at you. Or it's not to say that I will forgive what you did. But because I've shown you that I'm a human being and you can trust me and you've showed me that you're a human being and that I can trust you, then you'll know that when you talk about that bad thing that you did to me, I will see you first as a human being. And so you won't be the sum total of the worst thing that you've done. And that's what hum humanizing people is, right? That's what, that's what restorative justice is, is it's creating an environment where people can see each other as human beings and form that human connection. And once you do that, then I think you can have those tough conversations and they can be productive. And so like, how do you do that with people who are not in a circle, right? How do you do that when you're in front of an audience of prosecutors? It's tough, but we try and tell stories and, yeah. and show that video. Find your story. Um, and, and, and I was hoping to get that, that answer. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I had to learn at the very beginning is how to find my story. And my story is not just one story. It's a collection of stories that make me who I am. So you can pull from any part of who you are and share a story that, that, that fits with whatever topic that you're talking about. So like everybody that I do trainings with want these step-by-step -step how-tos and there's no step-by-step -step how to But I can give you an example of like, um, like we have, we have um, guest speakers all the time and they're telling you the same things over and over again. Find your story and be vulnerable enough to share your story. Um, and, I, and I say this to teachers mostly um, because teachers like to um, like to get stories told to them but don't want to tell their story. Um, you probably should do something else then. If, um, if you don't want to share your story, you probably, I mean, they're always hiring at the post office. You don't have to tell a story about the mail. 
you don't have to talk to customers in that way. But when you're talking to kids and babies and um and other humans, we are connected by our stories. Um, there's something in your story that's going to spark an interest in me that's going to make me want to share with you in circle. It's like it's the potency. It's the same potency of listening to music. If you hear a really good song by a really good artist, you want to hear what the next song is. It's the same thing as when we're when we're experiencing that connection in real life. It's it's like it's, it's potent. It shoots straight to your soul because that's what God intended to happen, for lack of a better term. Um, it's for us to connect in a way where straight through storytelling. Thank you, Seema. I, lo I love that. Neely, do we have any questions in the um, chat box or anything like that? Um, I don't see any questions, but I do want to um, invite folks to, um, if, if you want to ask questions for Roman and for, for Seema, um, so you can just jump in or if you feel more comfortable um, putting the questions in the chat box, um, we'd love to hear from you all. Um, I do have a question though, um, just within the process, do you all um, involve community members or is this like mostly with the person who's caused the harm and um, like the person who was harmed or like um, a surrogate um, victim for lack of a better term. Um, but yeah, do you all involve the community members as well? We do, um, we, we do try to, um, for our core intervention, our, our conferences, we do want to bring more than just um, the two parties, so to speak, together whenever we can. Um, usually that's, um, more packing the circle with more supporters. Um, but sometimes it's, it also includes um, community members outside of just folks who know um, the victim's family or the responsible youth family. Like we will have uh, school, school mentors, um, deans of students, or um, guidance counselors. Um, like Seema said, we regularly have um, our prosecutors, which again is something we didn't know if that would work so well, but it's been really successful to have prosecutors in there. Um, and and when, when I should say, um, we, we always check in with the parties. Sometimes um, it's really important to keep the, the, the circle smaller just based on the primary, the, the people to whom we have primary responsibility and who this is primarily for. Um, but more often than not, uh, we want more community members in there who are going to be engaged and who have um, something, some relationship to what happened, uh, because those inevitably result in more um, vulnerable, more um, just fruitful uh, conversations and more memorable, I think, for the, for the parties and for our team. How important is prep work, and um, and and what does what does prep look like in 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 a, in a victim offender dialogue? Yeah, so prep is very very important. Our um, one of the reasons I think that we typically mo the vast majority of our conferences have been successful both in like formal terms of reaching an agreement but also in 
the stories that come out of them and how people feel is because we really do focus on prep. Um, prep and like Seema, the first thing she said was slow it down. I've Someone on the chat said that they're struggling because they've got some um, expectation to have a case done start to finish in 60 days, um, which might not seem like a long time, but or might not seem like a short time, but that is that is fast, especially if you're just starting off. Um, we uh, we also have two facilitators, so uh, we meet every day as a whole team to talk about how cases are going. And really, at this point, I the longer that I am have been doing this, the more that I expect and need input from teammates to help create that, that to help make me know that I'm ready. And also we usually bring more than one facilitator into the prep conversations with the participants, um, especially toward the end of the process. So like today I said, okay, um, you know, I had a good conversation with this kid uh, last week and I really need a co-facilitator now to be in that next conversation with him because that level of when when this it's one thing for for me to build a relationship with the youth but when the the young person can be in a conversation with me and my teammate and see how we interact and see that we're both supporting him that and it just i don't know how to like sema probably has the research or something or or something technical but it just creates that x factor that has them want to come to their conference and want to engage more um, and so we do a lot of prep. Every case we actually um, get together as a team before at some point, like a week or so before the conference is scheduled and do a whole moot. It's like what we call a moot, which is um, at the very least kind of a, a battery of questions that we um, ask about the case. You know, what are your biases? What, where, where will this conference break down? Um, what are your goals for this conference? who's coming to the conference or who, who else would the conference benefit from if they are there? Why or why not? You know, and we have these typical questions that we go through and I wouldn't want to go into a conference without having done that because inevitably I go out of a moot with like three or four things that seem like, Oh my God, I can't believe I didn't do this already. I can't believe I didn't talk to, to mom about this. I can't believe I didn't invite older sister to the conference given that she's the one who's been calling me or, you know, whatever it is. So truly um 90 percent of a successful encounter like a conference uh um probably less so with with a circle and sometimes we have circles but when you're talking about a conference um 90 of, of a successful conference is in uh the prep what is worst case scenario if prep isn't done or isn't done right uh there's a lot of worst case scenarios <laughs> Um, and we've experienced a lot of them, thankfully not very often, um, but. Tell us a story. Yeah, well, you know, you never want um, folks to show up without the, without the responsible youth to show up. You know, that's, that's kind of a worst case scenario, you know, um, and that's, that's, that's usually preventable which in and of itself speaks volumes, right? The fact that, yes, this is this is a requirement, but 
a lot of these, um, I would venture to say there's quite a few of our youth who are participating who really aren't that afraid of of the juvenile justice system and of of their requirements. They often come because of how well PrEP has gone. And if PrEP hasn't gone that well, they're not gonna show up. Um, and so that's that's a worst case scenario. Um, I think another worst another worst case scenario or um, real failure is if, of course, um, they're not able to speak honestly or forthcomingly or represent themselves with their own voice, whatever that means. Um, and that we really are all of our facilitators would would have had that happen from time to time or want at least once um, and and. You don't want that to happen again because we really take that ourselves personally that I have not supported this person and that can be the victim or or the the um, the youth. I have not supported them. I should have had one more call with them to really build them up so that this was not such an um, impossible task to ask of them. Well, um, Seema, what, what am I missing? No, I think you've covered it. You you. Um... You're right. There, there are a lot of things that make us nervous, <laughs> right? We have, I would argue, uh, I have, we have five going on six, maybe seven restorative justice facilitators on staff. And I would argue they are the five best that exist. They're so, so talented and so wonderful. And, uh, and every single one of them, myself included, we get terrified before every conference because it's scary. And uh, I'll answer some questions about our resources in, a, in just a second. Thank you, Rachel and others for asking those questions. Um, but I, uh, I just wanted to say that this is really, really hard work. <laughs> and like, it's not like it gets easy when you do it a lot. And it was really important when we started this program to be able to show that you could do it consistently and you could do it at scale because it feels like when you're doing it, like it's it's like this couldn't this couldn't happen for every case because it's scary. And the truth is, is like this is about a rupture in like the social contract and like the norms of what we expect when somebody has committed a crime. Like something really fundamental has broken down and somebody has been hurt and somebody is responsible to some extent, maybe, maybe there's responsibility on both sides, but it's a real like fissure in the world as we expect it. And so, and that's a very human thing. And so to repair that is also human in the sense that it's messy and it's not easy and it's hard to bring people out of their shells. And it's super hard for a young person who's done something wrong to look at the person who they've hurt in the eye and explain what they've done and hear how the person's been impacted and answer their questions and then allow that person space to ask for what they need and to have a discussion about it like that sucks you know like it makes me uncomfortable even describing it and so like of course these things are really hard and I there was like a real question in my mind for sure, like, can you do this really um, in any significant number? And can people do this um, in a way that actually works? Um, or do we need to create this like harsh punitive system where everything is like 
um, distilled into these legal buckets so that we can like identify exactly what the wrong was and determine who did it and then find the punishment. Like, do we have to do that? Or can we have a human response to a human violation of some sort of norm? And, and now I can say, uh, even though every conference is hard and we're nervous before them and we're nervous for all of our participants because it's, it's, it's like a, 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 an experience that can cause a lot of anxiety, that yes, we can do this. We have had over 150 restorative justice conferences now. We, like Roman said, we take real crime, you know, like we, um, we get cases from prosecutors uh, and in the beginning, it was when the prosecutor thought that the young person was deserving of it or a victim was especially amenable to it. But now Roman is in there every day going through the lockup list and taking cases. We don't yeah. wait for prosecutors to refer them to us. We say, this is a serious violent crime. There is yeah. a victim in this case. This case involves a gun. I don't care that this kid has three priors. I don't care that he's got a bunch of open cases. I don't care that it was a shooting. Like we're gonna use restorative justice. And now we do. And now I think we are in the position to say, we know that we can do this. We know this is a better way for everyone involved. The person who's been harmed, the person responsible for their harm and their loved ones, all of them. And so now we need to show that we can actually transform the entire system. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to say in DC, <clears throat> our entire juvenile justice system is a restorative system because now we've proven that we can do it and we can do it at scale. And it doesn't take one magical person who has 30 years of experience asking the perfect questions. All of our facilitators, save Roman, had no experience with restorative justice conferencing. Oh, actually say Roman and Connie, we have one facilitator, a new one who has experience. But, you know, other people, you know, came from having done completely different things and they learned it and they do it beautifully. And so what I know is that um, <clears throat> it is possible, even though <clears throat> it's really hard. And Eric, you identified that you have to work, you have to do a lot of work for it. We've got to do a lot of prep, but like our system now puts tons of resources into locking people up. So yes. Um, I, I don't I don't mean to um, cut you off, Eric. I know you wanted to ask a question. I just wanted to point out that there are a couple of questions about um, how we get um, paid <laughs> and how we get cases. So I just want to put that out, Eric, and say that at some point I'd love to answer those questions. I, I want to come hang out with y'all. <laughs> Again, come back. Um, Seema, you, you should answer those. And, I, and, and as a lead into her answering those questions, I'm, um, I, I also want to do, to acknowledge that we are relatively privileged as a team in being able to dedicate two facilitators to every case, being able to take usually um, as much time as we need on a case. Um, we are as often as not wanting to move cases faster rather than slower, but that's a whole nother conversation. Um, and having our facilitators paid well for what they do um, if Seema says this is very hard work, it's very hard work um, substantively in terms of doing the casework, but Seema is, um, she's, she's been dedicated to get us into this position, which she just named of wanting to credibly move to a restorative system because she's insisted every step of the way that we have, and she's 
gone to bat year after year to provide, to insist that our team is able to do restorative justice at a level that will achieve these outcomes so that we're not short, you know, we're not dropping participants and we're able to feel confident going into our conferences, have people show up, have agreements get met, which is largely a function of our team being resourced to do it and supported to do it. Um, and that's, I'll let her say more about that, but I, I just want to acknowledge her for that because I know that from, you know, I've, I've worked with other teams and we know how difficult it is, but Seema has really wanted to insist that this isn't a side thing in our office. We, are, we do not show up um, like we're some side thing. Um, you know, there's still plenty of ground to cover, but we are, you know, we're a section within the office. We, we, we take our role as seriously as anybody else. And I think that is something that, that she's insisted on for our team to be able to have. So anyway, with that, if you want to say more about, um, that Seema, you, I don't want to take the money bags. Yeah. Miss money bags. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody once told me that a good leader does two things. They hire well and they bring money. <laughs> so I've, I've definitely hired very, very well, as you can see with Roman and as you would see if you met my other uh, colleagues and teammates. Um, but uh, bringing in resources has been uh, easier than it should have been. Uh, it's in part because we have, uh, as I mentioned before, we have an elected leader who um, who was really supportive of restorative justice and has given me a lot of leeway to build out this program. And then, you know, we hustle, you know, like we've gone after grants. We, uh, there was an open position in my office and I like co-opted it and turned it into, you know, I was like, I made the case that we didn't actually need that position and I took it and I made it into a restorative justice facilitator when it was vacant. Um, we got a grant from the federal government to do this and then hired two people as a result and then told everyone like, well, we can't not have these two facilitators. So they kind of had to keep them. And then, you know, like I knew where the money came from, right? It came from our city council. So I put like the key staffer of the judiciary committee into a restorative justice conference, which I think Roman facilitated because she talks about Roman to this day. <laughs> And after being in that restorative justice conference, like we've successfully gotten the city council to give us a new restorative justice position every budget since then. Um, and so um, the key is to be really thoughtful about power, you know, and who's got it and who you need to convince and then you bring them on and you, um, and you make the case. So that's, that's, you know, that's how we've done it in DC. I know it's so hard elsewhere and I'm, um, it's not fair for me to be flippant about it, um, but we have um, five full-time restorative justice facilitators. One of them, Roman, is the coordinator of our program and a full-time facilitator, but he uh, does liaisoning with the national folks. He does uh, liaisoning with our prosecutors. He does the assignment of all cases. Really, he runs the program. Makes me wonder what it is I'm doing. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and they uh, are employees of the prosecutor's office and, uh, that's amazing. And, you know, in the beginning, it was really important to me that we actually, it continues to be really important to me that we hire people 
who reflect the demographic of the kids that are in the system. I think that's super important because we want these kids and their family members who are naturally very suspicious of the justice system to be able to build rapport quickly with our facilitators and know that they can trust our facilitators and know that they can, they can be confident that our facilitators will hold their trauma. And part of the trauma that these kids experience is systemic racism. And you know they may not feel like, uh, they might like me a lot, but they may not feel like I can hold um, that experience in the same way that an African-American facilitator can. And so because of the demographic of the kids in DC, our, our, our facilitators um, reflect that. Uh, so that's been a great privilege too, to be able to you know, and we've hired people who have criminal records themselves, which is also, I think, a really important thing to do if possible. Uh, and that required at my office changing our HR rules and changing our position description templates um, and, and having them make exceptions about the kind of folks who we can hire and we prefer. So um, I don't know if I answered the questions, I'm sorry. Our facilitators are paid. We get our cases directly from prosecutors and the funding comes from our city council. Great, thank you. Um, I also see that Maria Lourdes, that you have a question. Hi, yeah. Um, good morning. Hi. So you probably might have answered this earlier. I had a, I had a meeting prior to this, so I apologize came in late, but I'm kind of curious. I know our ideal world, we want restorative justice or restorative practice to apply to everyone, but do you remember a story or a case that you worked so hard to, you know, implement a restorative justice or a conference um, and you, you know, blood and tears and, and your love and care, um, but it didn't work out? And um, also like, what was your feeling after that? And how did you move on from it? Um, it reminds me of something that Roman taught me, which I'm gonna say this and then kick it to you, Roman. But once he told us all, our whole team, we have to go into doing this work with no attachment to the outcome. And that kind of like blew my mind. Um, so Roman, do you think you can talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, honestly, um, I, I, I kind of feel like I'm going through that now a little bit, um, Seema, with the one case where uh, <laughs> all four of these youth are locked up and now in different places. And we've had, we've, we've, um, I've, I've been working with these families and, and youth since early August, and we're nowhere near uh, RJ conference yet. Well, we might be near actually, but um, let's just say it's been, it's been daunting. Um, one of the things that's been daunting is the key youth really um, was sort of extradited and, and locked up in, a, in, in Maryland in a different jurisdiction, which threw off his mom's and his focus totally off from RJ. And, and he was locked up in the adult system initially. 
So he was, even though he's 16, because of the charges and because of their rules, the prosecutor uh, brought his case in adult court in Maryland. And so it's just like this huge crisis and he's still over there. Now he, we've been able to get him moved to the juvenile system and might be able to get him moved back to DC, but it just sort of threw everything off for him because now when I'm talking to his mom, for me to even bring up RJ would be in, kind of insulting to her because she's just concerned about her baby, right? And so it's it's situations like that where, I mean, the theme of this talk was like decolonizing the system. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do restorative justice uh, with four different um, participants, sort of co-respondents or cross-respondents who have all harmed each other in serious ways. And like, they're like locked up, they're all in detention in different states. It's just like, sometimes when, I, when I'm not, I mean, I can be very task oriented and like just onto the next thing, onto the next thing. But that's the type of case where if you stop for a second, I can feel like I'm just, I'm swimming so hard upstream, just swimming in place, if you know what I mean. Um, which is why, and there have been sometimes, um, I'm trying to think, I actually can't think of any of mine right now. Um, you know, there've been, there, there's, there's, there's cases where um, you'll have a good conference and um, or even just like I had a good, you know, where, where, where young people will, will so, sort of let you down, you know, but, you know, you kind of get used to that. I mean, like Seema said, if you're really holding their trauma um, from the get-go, you know that it's not about you. And even if they, they, they don't necessarily live up to the things they've agreed to or all the things they've agreed to, that's not necessarily a failure necessarily because like, if, as you can hear in all the stories that we've told today, or a few of the stories we've told today, sometimes um, our goals for a case might not have anything to do with their formal agreement. Even if they're able to, for, for my biggest goal with that kid was, can I just get him to talk to his mom about what happened? Even if that kid hadn't made it to a conference, I would have been very proud of him because I knew how hard that was him to, he, he was going to, he was trying, he was literally running away from his mom in our prep calls, like just, you know, anyway. So, um, but yeah, um, there are, it's, it's a lot of work and, and stress and chasing people around. Um, and when you add to that, the sort of the, the most um, oppressive circumstances of the system, you know, having to do your prep calls from this, the detention block and it can feel so alienating. It, it is, it is, it can be discouraging. Um, I hope, I hope I answered your question. You know, it's, it's not all, it's not all uh, like, it is very hard work. <laughs> um, just to put for Maria, just to put a fine point on what Roman just said. Uh, and he said this before too, is even if the restorative justice conversation or dialogue doesn't happen, it doesn't mean that you being restorative hasn't had an impact. Right. Right, Roman, you've said that I think yeah. many times to me and to others in the team. And I think that that's right. Like we oftentimes talk to victims of crime who, who don't agree to do restorative justice. And sometimes it's a case where you're like, oh, you know what? I know that you need this, you know, <laughs> like, 
you have so much anger and so much pain, and this will give you something that you just aren't going to get from the, the regular system. And, and I know this young person now, I've met them, and you will you would, you would gain so much from being able to talk to them and hear from them. And this young person will gain so much being able to talk to you. And you know that that's the case. And yet they say no. And that's a little tiny bit crushing. But on the other hand, um, you know, there's trauma in being victimized. And part of that is you've lost control over something, you know. And to, to be given power, even power to reject an option is in some ways restorative, right? Even explaining to a young person that there exists this other way to do things and building trust with them and showing them that you don't look at them and see a monster. Um, even if they decide that they would rather go to trial or don't wanna do restorative justice, you've still, you've still been restorative to them and there is value in that. And we, I think sometimes have to just take confidence and solace in that. Um, because it's how we are behaving, not necessarily the thing that happens. So I have a question. Um, I also, my, I work in another job too, where I work with um, in, in the jails um, with the sheriff's department. And I know that like doing this, doing the work kind of inside the the justice system is is exhausting um, and can sometimes feel, um, at least for me personally, like um, really frustrating at points because it's like, am I actually making these shifts that I want to make possible? Um, so what, in those moments where you all feel kind of defeated, what is something that you use to kind of practice self-care or like what are reminders um, for yourself as you kind of move through the, the, the difficult process of like bringing restorative justice within these systems. I have a really compassionate supervisor. <laughs> um, I, think, I think that's really, it's about having a team that mainly that is, um, we've all, that we're comfortable sharing our, our, I think our frustrations and disappointments with as much as we are our successes, I would say is, is my answer to that, number one, which I think we have that team um, and SEMA sets the tone for that of, um, you know, I remember when we had a really, really important case and it looked like the respondent wasn't gonna show up and I was so afraid to tell Seema because this was one that was um, gonna be publicized. And she was like, <laughs> she was like I mean, I, I literally, Seema, I, sometimes I think about that and I chuckle because I'm like, I can't believe you must've been so freaked out. But she was like, it's okay. You know, this happens to all of us. And um, that's just really important, right? Uh, but the, he ended up showing up and it was a great conference. Um, but that, that I think is the biggest thing that makes it okay. Um, I would say that it's um, finding a, it's, it's what Roman said, like it's finding a community of people who will um, be compassionate to you, you know, that you can talk to, that you can like, 
put out your fears, you know, like I, um, I feel a lot of burden by the, um, the work that we do, like trying to, you know, be able to do what we say we want to do. <laughs> and, um, the thing that always makes me feel better is to talk to these guys, my, my team about it and to be like, I'm scared that we can't do this. You know, <laughs> what are we going to do? And then they, they're like, no, 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 we got this. We got this. We're going to do it. We've made this happen. We can, we can do it. So, um, for me that the same thing, the community has been really important. Um, and so I think that's, that's the best suggestion I've, I've got for you, unfortunately. I think also recognizing that being a caretaker and a healer is really, that, that work is really, really hard and recognizing that and like kind of giving yourself compassion about that is important. I remember um, when I was a public defender, I'd just come out of law school. I was like a baby and I was, you know, in court trying cases and I was terrified. <laughs> and I would have like stomach pain all the time. And uh, like, I just, you know, wasn't able to keep anything down. Um, and so I did some like Google searching about stress and like, how do you relieve stress? And I remember reading that all of the studies on stress are done on people who take care of other people because that is the like a consistent level of high level stress and that's what we do we take care we care for other people we absorb their pain we you know we walk their pain we walk with them so that we feel their pain you know like i, I didn't even remember rome in that time but like the reason probably that i was like okay about the fact that this kid wasn't gonna show up is that I was just as nervous as you are, you know? Like, I was like, okay, we're gonna be okay, we're gonna be okay, because like, we're all in it together. Um, and so it's hard, like, it's scary for all of us. Um, so just recognizing that this work requires a lot of self-care um, and permission. You know, you're not just dealing with people who are experiencing or have experienced trauma, Neely you are experiencing trauma, right? When you do this work. And so you have to um, do what you need to do. Like, you know, we just had, I had to step in for a co-facilitator for one of our team last week or the week before, I can't even remember. And it was really important to her after her conference was completed that we processed right away. And that's actually, that's like in the research it shows that like quickly processing trauma and not sitting on it and waiting at it is like very trauma informed. And she kind of intuitively knew that. And she was like, I need to talk this through before we go. And so we did that um, uh, because she's carrying a lot of the emotional weight for a lot of people for those two hours. And so gotta be careful with ourselves and others when we do this work. Yes. Nils. Thank you. Um, so I just wanna, open up the space if anybody else has a has a question um, before we wrap up. Um, so yeah, um, jump in if you have a question. Well, I don't think we have any more questions. Let me see. Um, yeah, so I mean, I guess we'll, we'll wrap up now, but um, and I've learned so much from you, Roman, from you, Seema. 
Um, thank you so much for, for sharing today, your stories, your experiences, um, the reminders to, you know, be, to give yourself grace in the process of kind of bringing restorative justice within, within these systems. Um, so really, truly honored to have you both here. Thank you so much um, from the bottom of our hearts. Um, and for everybody else, thank you for being here too. Um, and we'll be back again on Tuesday, uh, Thursday at five o'clock. Um, I believe Eric will be leading that discussion. Um, so thank you everyone. Thank you again, Simon Roman. And thank we'll see you. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Eric. Always a pleasure. Thank, thank you, everyone. All right, y'all. Y'all be cool. Bye-bye, everyone. Well. Bye.